1: It is Alex Pearson on Point, and today on the podcast, we look into the children being left behind because of COVID-19 as the school year continues to be disrupted by the pandemic. And we'll speak with a journalist who did an investigation on this and wrote about it in the New Yorker, about this lost generation, an entire generation. It's not just an American problem. It is also here in Canada. We'll also talk about why the police are looking into COVID data that they have no business looking into. And we talked to Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party, his first day back at work as he kicks off as the uh, new boss right after recovering from COVID-19. We'll talk about what he would do in this pandemic and would he shut the economy down. Let's get going.
2: Getting through the That's the point, you understand. There is a point. That point where enough is enough.
1: Here's
3: Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening.
2: That's why I've just been pounding the pavement with Health Canada to get these approvals. All you know, I always go to root cause or the five whys. If you find out a problem, why, 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 and you'll find out the answer, and everything goes back to long lineups, testing, long, you know, getting results quickly, testing. And it all comes down to Health Canada, uh, you know, again, giving us the, the approval uh, and a safe approval to move, move forward.
1: Well, pound no more, Premier, because please be. For the first time ever in this country, a bureaucratic miracle occurred overnight. And the rapid test the Trudeau Liberals bought Tuesday somehow got approved in 24 hours. Just no one told Premier Ford. Alex Pearson here with you on this eventful Wednesday, September 30th, and a happy Wednesday to all. Happy birthday to my mother in Hamilton. Happy birthday, Mom. Uh, It has been a busy one. Uh, Still waiting for my child's COVID test, losing my sanity by the second. Sure would be nice to have that rapid test anytime, right? Well, now we do. Yes, imagine that. Wasn't I just talking about this on last night's show? But the news literally came down as Premier Ford was reading Health Canada the Riot Act, and he was begging Health Canada to approve rapid tests. And voila, while he's talking, we learned in the newsroom that the A- the Abbott ID Now rapid test, has been approved. And these are the uh, rapid saliva so tests that give you results in fifteen minutes. Spit in it, and away you go. And it was, uh, you know, announced by Trudeau just yesterday. And clearly Ford was out of the loop on this thing because he said today he was told approval for this thing was coming in December. That's why he was getting so irritated about it. So either the prime minister clicked his heels together three times to make this magically happen, or he did the very thing that he told us Friday he would not do, and that is get politically involved. So forgive my skepticism on the timing of this, but the opposition, you know, they've been chewing on this rapid testing daily. It's been a colossal delay for months. And so this narrative of being caught flat-footed has been reaching kind of a crisis point. So forgive me for thinking that maybe Trudeau added some of that SNC pressure, you know. And I'm not trying to be a party pooper. We need this. I will take this win. Because there's too much at cost not to get this going. But it's just a little too cute that on Friday, Dr. Tam said, we barely have any data on rapid testing. They hadn't gotten an application from this company. And apparently something so impossible to get done quickly uh, on Friday is now a reality hours later. So there you go. Now, it's got a success rate of 92%. So maybe Health Canada took its uh, head out of its derriere and and signed off on the obvious. But really? It's got 92% success rate? Other countries are using it? What's the holdup? But there's no question, Trudeau did not want this to be, you know, pinned on him. And so uh, someone must have lit a fire under someone at uh, Health Canada's butt. But it should have happened uh, a long time ago, because right now we've got a backlog of 70,000 cases. I'm now on day three waiting for my son's COVID test. He can't go back to school uh, until he gets that. And if we're that backlogged and, you know, you saw the numbers today of 625, then you have to wonder how much higher those numbers could be. But um, don't get too excited because I watched Question Period today because I like to torture myself. And Trudeau said these tests, they're not coming for a couple of more weeks. It's not like they're going to be available tomorrow. And you'll recall Dr. uh, Jacobs, who I'll talk to in just a few minutes, he said on Tuesday, it's already too late. We're not going to have them in time for what is expected to be the peak of this thing in two weeks. Like October 15th is supposed to be the day where we have all these massive amounts of cases. And keep in mind, they only ordered 8 million of these things. So unless the government has millions more on order, that supply will not last long. It's got to be shared across the country, and it'll mean rationing them. Because you want to give them to the seniors' homes. You want to give them to the frontline workers. You want to give them to people who are in direct contact with this, schools, whatever. So there's not going to be a lot to go around and all the provinces are going to be asking for them. So I certainly hope that they've got orders going and they're getting them fast because it's not going to be enough to hold us over. And then today, of course, we got uh, new modeling numbers. And uh, according to Dr. Brown, it ain't going to be pretty.
4: If things grow as we're anticipating, we will see a dramatic uh, increase in the number of cases with cases now doubling every 10 to 12 days and likely over uh, a thousand cases uh, within the first half of October a day, which is a remarkably high surge uh, unless uh, public health measures and adherence to public health measures start to tamp down that transmission.
1: Okie dokie. So I hope they're wrong. I really, really hope they're wrong. But uh, it does look like we're headed back to the hell called spring. Albeit this time, I will guarantee we're not going to see the bread making. We're not going to see the all in this together and uh, the what I watched on Netflix. What should I watch next? Story. We won't see any of that because in round two, it will not be novel, not by a long shot. Uh, just last night, you know, while watching that train wreck south of the border, my husband looked at me last night with such a look of resignation, and I said, "What's wrong?" He said, "I just can't." I can't imagine what is coming at us, like what the next few months are going to look like. And what he's talking about is, you know, not seeing anybody, you know, not going out. Maybe the schools close. Maybe again, we're doing the online teaching stuff. If they ever, ever, by the way, get it running. But it's overwhelming because we are so much more fatigued uh, than we were in the spring. And when it was also new, I mean, it was scary, but it was just you know, you're kind of running on adrenaline and now we know what's coming and people are tired. People are stressed out. Businesses are stressed and it's going to be colder and it's going to be darker. Remember, at least in the spring, you got some sunlight and it was like, oh, you could go for a walk. We're going the other way this time. And so that freedom that summer offered, it'll wear thin real quick. And, you know, I've only been working now with a child home for three days and I'm literally ready to run away. I'm literally at that point already. And I know I'm not alone. So the thought of doing this every day again is tough. But, you know, the reality is we cannot shut things down. Not, not totally again. We just can't. And I know that there are a lot in the medical community who are demanding that we do that. I know polling shows people are supportive of it. But the businesses won't survive. And we have to keep these kids in school as much as we can. There is such a difference when you walk by the playgrounds, you see the kids, they are so excited. And imagine taking that away from them again. And they're being hurt by this. So there is a big, big cost of shutting things down like we did in the spring. So I'm very glad when the premier today resisted the drastic action
2: health is number one the economy beside it about mental health when people are holding on by their fingernails a lot of these uh, restaurant owners that are struggling and and be it bar owners or small business hair salons and nail salons and he he understands it but believe me he, he gets it and uh, he's doing everything he can and he has throughout this whole band pandemic to have a happy balance make sure we take care of people's health but we need to keep the economy uh, moving as, as well.
1: Darn right we do. And, you know, the bottom line is there's a cost to this. Yes, there's the health cost, but there's also the mental health cost. There is things, what, drug overdoses that are climbing, job losses, and kids being left behind. And so, you know, if we're going to live with this thing, as they tell us we will for a long time, then we got to learn how, you know, to live with it without choking the entire economy, because it's going to cost us a lot more than just dollars uh, and cents. And in the nine o'clock hour, I'm actually going to speak with an investigative reporter out of Baltimore who wrote this heartbreaking piece about the lost generation. And he's talking about millions of kids being left behind of the school closure. And look, it's not as easy as doing it online. You can't just send kids to go online. There are huge costs for kids that, that may not be felt for years. And if they do close the schools again, like, what does it look like? What's it going to look like? Seven months in, the largest board still can't get their online learning up and running. It is nuts that they can't get their act together. Well, we have a busy show tonight. We'll go through all of this. Um, Aaron Tool will join us at 8 o'clock. It it's his first day back at work after COVID. We'll talk uh, to him. What would he do if he was running the show? And yes, I watched the debates after the show. And uh, shock of all shocks. Two crazy white men came off as crazy. I don't know why everyone's so shocked by this. And I found the whole thing just very sad, to be honest with you. It was a train wreck. But, you know, while that was going on, there was a confidence vote in this country. And $50 billion was pushed through after midnight. And we're going to talk about the fact that the liberals tried to shut down debate on this spending, again, trying to do the power grab, And they don't want any debate on this bill. Which, you know, you have to wonder, are there more mistakes made? Are we going to catch those? Are there going to be costs of this thing? Because they tried to just ram it through. And of course, they had the NDP support. We'll talk to uh, Blacklock's reporting on this because it's not a small thing. You've got to be able to look at these things and debate these things. It's all great and dandy that they prorogued the House for uh, six, uh, you know, five weeks. But that was a political move. And in doing so, they cost a lot of people time and aid and help and all these other things, but there could be some very costly mistakes because they wanted to rush this thing through. So what will the cost of this pandemic be to children? Uh, We don't know that yet. But we do know they're being hurt. And, you know, seven months in here in Ontario, we're still grappling with the chaos of getting kids even online. And there's the question of long-term costs of having kids learning online. And as a mom to an only child, I know how it impacted my child negatively. And I know how having him back in came has literally been a game changer. But there is a haunting piece in The New Yorker that tells the story of a 12-year-old child in Baltimore who fell through the cracks, of course, once schools shut down in the state. Because, as is happening to so many children across North America, his life was thrown into chaos. And Shamar's story is going to be one, I think, of millions that we learn about in North America, whose only structure and support is found in school. And then, once the disruption took hold, his life, his safety, uh, mental well being, and his future were basically put onto a path of potential failure. The author of the piece, Alex Alec McGillis, He's a journalist with uh, ProPublica. This is a nonprofit uh, newsroom that investigates abuses of power. And this was a piece co-published in The New Yorker. And I thank you, Alec, for joining us, because I know how busy you are.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, this is Shamar's story, and I've oversimplified his story. And he may be from Baltimore, but I think he represents millions of children across North America who, you know, once the shutdown happened, were lost because the only structure he had was the school and the teacher who made sure to keep him safe and invested.
5: That's right. I mean, school was just such a big part of his life. It was the only, only place where he really got to be with other people. Um, He has a very, very unstable home situation. Um, His mother has suffered for years from serious drug addiction um, and they've bounced around a lot. And, um, but but school was, and he's also a he's a his siblings are all much older. So the only time he got to be with kids' his own age really um, was at school. And and when when school shut down in March, he basically spent the next few months um, really bas- basically in a series of a series of different homes. but w- whichever home he was in, he was simply sitting in a dark room with the blinds drawn. Um, playing video games or watching TV, often completely unsupervised, completely on his own, um, sleeping till you know one or two in the afternoon because he'd stay up super late the night before. and and just kind of utterly unmoored. And and that that's been his reality for the last six months. Um, and now now school has started back up, which means that he's on the computer, With his online classes if he if he can log on to them Mm -hmm. Um, But he's still basically in that dark room by himself on the screen
1: Yeah, I mean structure is so crucial to children, um, you know, but it's so crucial to, to their development and by the by the grace of this teacher, who was invested in his life, I mean, he was very lucky because he had this teacher dedicated. She went out of her way to check in, you know, check in, uh, getting resources like a, a computer so he could use it. But it, but it's an uphill battle, and not all teachers are that invested.
5: Right, uh, there, there are actually several teachers that appear in the piece that that have now and then um, reached out and tried to do more for him. Um, this one teacher I focused on especially, she actually, I met her in the first place because she had came out late one evening, long after the schools were closed a couple years ago, she came out to help us look for him. We thought he had gotten lost and and she hadn't had him, she was, she'd had him a year earlier. She didn't even have him as a student anymore, but she came out um, at seven in the evening looking for him um, and st- really struck me as a sign of her commitment. Um, And, but then there've been other teachers too, when another teacher came looking for him last spring, when he hadn't been logging on to his classes. Um, But there's only so much the teachers can do. I mean, I've spoken with a lot of teachers for the piece and they're just constantly wrestling with, where do you draw the line? You know, how, how much do you actually, how much can you actually invest in trying to reach out to the students that are now at risk of becoming, of really kind of just falling away entirely.
1: I mean, I struggle as a parent, uh, and I have structure. You know, I've got a sick kid at home, and I'm trying to do my work, and, I, and I'm and i like every other parent out there, just trying to keep it together. So it's really hard to imagine what those in a low-income situation or those on the margins, um, you know, it's almost like they're guaranteed failure, because there are more shamars than there are teachers.
5: Oh, definitely. Um, the, the One of the things that just, I think, Came through in my reporting, and I think has been missed a lot, is that it's not just about about the the, the computers and the and the Wi-Fi. And there's been so much talk about that, about uh, the digital divide and kids not being able to log on. The issue that we've now given out tons of laptops here in Baltimore and hotspots and all that. Mm-hmm. The issue is not really really the equipment. It's it's the it's the support at home to make sure that that kids are are getting online and doing doing what they need to be doing to at least some extent and um and also the communication that's such a huge challenge also just the challenge of of not um of the messages getting through from teachers to to the kids um you know this logon, this link this code um and so it's really more that than it is the actual computer and the connection
1: Right. And it's a structure. It's also, you know, reporting of abuse. It's also making sure that a child is fed. It's also making sure that, um, you know, they're staying on a path because once you've taken them out of that structure um, like Shamar, they, they tune out and then it's hard to get them back. And, you know, we have schools here in Canada opened uh, provincially. It's it's province by province. But, you know, we're on the trajectory going up. I know Baltimore is still shut down, but we, we could be shut down at any time. And there's so much politics at play with this issue. But I think what your piece really kind of is, is a wake-up call for why we just can't be so casual about shutting down these schools and just automatically just saying, OK, kids, go home.
5: That's right. And, you um, know, I think that... My, my main goal with the piece really was just to force us to reckon more more directly more squarely with what this actually means for all these kids what it actually actually looks like I think it's we've been much too um willing just to kind of let it slide outside our consciousness partly because it is literally invisible as i point out in the piece you know back, you know, before before COVID, you you would at least see all these children. You may not have been thinking about them as much as you should be, but they were at least visible to some degree. They were, you saw them going to school, you saw them in the in the in the schoolyard, and in the parks, whatnot. But now they're just invisible because everyone's just kind of locked in in behind their closed doors with their blinds drawn, and and so we've just allowed them to kind of just uh, completely escape our 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 consciousness and our concern.
1: Yeah, and we know there will be costs to mental health for everybody. I mean, what we don't know, and and I don't think we'll know for a very long time, is the cost to this particular generation um, who who were robbed of a complete true school experience to no fault of their own. Um, Because, you know, those in charge, both in Canada and the United States, in 2020 don't seem to be able to come up with a plan um, within months to to get something together.
5: Right. I mean, one, one of my... Other goals of the piece was to look back into history to, sh- to show just how costly these kind of breaks in education have been for all sorts of different people, whether it was in World War II or in the American South, um, in the Civil Rights Revolution years, where you had one district actually shut down its schools entirely to avoid having to integrate them. And, and so you had uh, hundreds of Black children without any schooling for several years, and, and it just completely had these incredibly devastating long-term consequences for them you know literacy loss of lifelong loss of income feelings of self-worth um and so you know this the the stakes here are really huge
1: it, not to mention the social development and how important it is for kids to be around kids to be around uh, out and g- gaining independence i mean you talk about a lost generation in this piece and um I don't know what that looks like, but it does. I think and should be a real concern for for not just parents, uh, but those who are making all these snap decisions. Right. Alec uh, McGillis is the author of this piece. You must read it in the New Yorker. It is about a lost generation going online, and the issue of school closures did come up uh, in Tuesday's debate. Trump wants them open. Biden wants them closed. On Thursday we'll pick up on the politics of shutting down education. And is the cost of good polling and uh, votes coming at the cost of these kids in the future? All right, coming up, we get the doctor on modeling numbers, the staggering caseload coming our way, and the fact that we got rapid testing approval, um, but it's still, it comes too late. We'll talk about that coming up. Stay with us on point, Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: So the cops been uh, digging into your personal info using the pandemic as justification because they shouldn't be, but an investigation by the Canadian Constitution Foundation has uncovered documentation that uh, shows some police forces are using the COVID-19 database to look up names of people and doing these broad-based searches into people's personal health information, not because they're doing it as part of an active um, or relevant investigation, because I guess they can. This is not okay. It's not legal. In fact, it's a huge violation of our constitutional right to privacy. Christine Van Guyen is the litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Great to have you, Christine. Thanks for having me on. How did this uh, come to your attention that it was even happening?
3: Yes, yeah, so I, I filed a Freedom of Information request actually on an unrelated matter. Um, and I got this document back that is a letter from the Solicitor General's Office to all Chiefs of Police in Ontario outlining that it appears that uh, police services have been inappropriately using a database of COVID records, Um, so the names and COVID status of, of individuals in Ontario. And they were using this database in a number of ways that were not authorized. They were originally granted access to this database, in order to protect themselves, if they um, wanted to go into a home with a with a warrant, or if they pulled someone over, they could they could um, run their information and find out their COVID status. But it turned out the police uh, were actually conducting broad based searches of just postal codes to see people in in their, certain postal codes if there were people with COVID. They were doing. Um, searches of other cities. So they were looking up COVID cases in cities outside of the one that they actually work in. And the worst of all, they were running names of individuals that were unrelated to any police uh, call or investigation. So um, we can only speculate about why the police would have been doing this, but certainly... And what would
1: the speculation be? I mean, if you're looking at someone's names in that database, because they've either been uh, contacted through Health Canada uh, as a possible contract uh, case, uh, tracing or, or having a case, correct?
3: So they're only in the database if they have a positive test result. These okay. were um, responses from public health. These were, this was a database created by public health and uh, laboratories that did the testing.
1: And so um, what other information could be gleaned um, in your mind that the police might be looking for?
3: Um, I mean, so the, the, some of the rationales that police provided to another organization the canadian civil liberties association Was that uh, police were testing the system? So they would run the name of the city For example, the police would just run guelph and then they mm. say okay the, it Showed up a bunch of a bunch of results So we know that the system works or they would run a postal code to see if um, If the postal code function worked uh, but you're, you're sort of getting into a real stretch when you say we're just going to put in a random name mm-hmm. and see what the result comes up. Because I I think that in those cases, it's far more likely that it was to satisfy the curiosity of officers to see if individual people that they you know know have, have COVID. And that is a complete violation of, of both our constitutional Protection of of against an unreasonable search, our health information is is protected against that, Um, and it's also a violation of uh, the Personal Health Information Protection Act. So um, there there are there penalties under that legislation, and we've asked the Privacy Commissioner to investigate.
1: Yeah, and it's not all police forces, but certainly Durham and Thunder Bay are cited as being uh, kind of the big offenders at forty percent of the searches. But I, I mean, how how widespread uh, is this?
3: Yeah. So Durham and Thunder Bay represented forty percent of all of the ser- all of the ninety five thousand searches that were conducted. So certainly, it suggests a problem in those communities. And Durham actually had their access to the database cut off early because of that. But there are other police departments that didn't see value in the database at all. For example, Toronto didn't. Ever have access to the database? They didn't want it because they said um, there was too big a risk that the information in the database is incomplete or inaccurate or out of date. Um, The Canadian Civil Liberties Association found that um, the database actually continued to list people even after they'd recovered from a case of COVID. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of police, for example, Toronto, didn't see value in it, whereas others used it apparently for these sort of fishing expeditions which is a huge violation of our right to privacy
1: right and some people will blow this off and say well what information could they find but it is it is definitely um, a violation of privacy rights but it is also an abuse of the emergencies act which when you start to abuse that which you know for those who don't really understand the emergencies act this gives governments huge wielding powers that can be easily easily abused and when they are abused uh, it erodes trust, and this is not connected to the COVID app. Uh, so let's clarify it. But it is, and an a big reason I think why we see people they'll say they'll look they'll look at this Christine and say, "See, I don't trust it. I don't trust the system. I don't want to give the government any information or download a, an app or you know sign on to any base because they're going to breach my privacy." So this is one of those things where it just erodes trust, and then people don't listen, and then you get people out not wearing masks and everything else.
3: Yeah, that's a really great point. This is com- this is unrelated to the COVID app, which doesn't store data in a centralized way, whereas this database was a centralized database. Um, so the COVID app couldn't be um, abused in the same way that this database was. But what we need in the state of an emergency is to have faith in our institutions and have faith in um, organizations like like the police. And this completely erodes trust and that's why we've asked for an investigation and for, for individual officers who are found, have, have um, engaged in misconduct, we want there to be some disciplinary consequences.
1: In other words, individual officers, I mean, what would the consequence be? Could it be a, a disciplinary measures at, at, the, at the police force level or is there a, 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 any kind of federal or provincial fine?
3: Um, so under the Health, uh, Personal Health Information Protection Act, there are administrative penalties that could be levied and um, under, we've also complained to um, to the Ontario Independent Police Review Director um, so that there could be individual penalties on, on specific officers that are found to have engaged in misconduct. Now I'll say that we don't have um, any you know, clear-cut evidence of what they were exactly looking for. Um, so there, you know, there isn't clear-cut evidence of 100% misconduct, but there's certainly a reason for an investigation here.
1: Certainly. And it doesn't take a lot. I mean, um, there was a case uh, a number of years ago, probably I'd say about a decade ago now in the courts where you had uh, jury selections and you had cops going in and, and looking at the jurors and who was selected and doing a bit of background check on that. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but you can get cases thrown out. I mean, there are real consequences when you step over the lines. And so for anyone thinking, i will shrug the shoulder, th- there can be very, very big consequences on things like this to uh, society at large and it's amazing. I mean, if you stumbled on this with just a search for something else, you gotta wonder what else is going on.
3: Absolutely, so um, we hope that there's action taken by the Privacy Commissioner and the Police Review Director and that there's a a real investigation into what happened here. And I'd add that the, the access to the database is now ended. So the abuse um, can't continue. And we'd say in wave two of this pandemic, which we seem to be experiencing right now, we absolutely cannot re-grant access to this database.
1: Quite a scoop there, Christine. I appreciate your time on this. Yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for having me on. That's Christine Van Guy. This is uh, the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Small, but not so small. And again, not connected to the app but it does uh, bode why people do not trust uh, things like this. But you should, and you should download it because it is actually a good app. And the Privacy Commissioner actually signed off on that. Coming up, we will talk to the author of a piece in The New Yorker about a lost generation thanks to the shutdown of education systems in America and why it matters here as well. We'll talk to him in just a minute. It is not to be missed. Here on Point, I'm Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. (laughs)
4: I'd like to start by thanking all colleagues and indeed thousands of Canadians for their warm wishes and prayers to my wife Rebecca and I as we recovered from COVID-19. Thank you, Canada.
1: I too want to begin by uh, wishing the leader of the opposition uh, welcome back to this house after the health health scare he had.
4: uh, But seeing him in good health, uh, seeing the leader of the Bloc Québécois back in the house as well uh, is a good thing. We all want good health uh,
1: for everyone. And that's about as nice as it got. Then it got back to business for the new leader of the official opposition. And Aaron O'Toole and bloc leader Yves-François Blachette were back to work after both tested positive for COVID-19. And of course, COVID was the lead in question period, with O'Toole taking uh, Trudeau to task for basically dragging uh, his feet on things like rapid testing. As uh, now millions short and months too late. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole joining me now and the first time uh, that you've been on the show as leader. So welcome. It's
4: great to be back with you, Alex.
1: Let's start with the easy question. Uh, How are you feeling? And uh, now that you're on the other side of this, Mr. O'Toole, uh, you know, and we're now in the second wave, what can you share from your experience?
4: Well, listen, um, once again, my first thought is just the respect for the people that helped us through the system. Um, you know, the people, the testing places that are overwhelmed, the the public health nurse that walked my wife and I through things Mm. almost on a daily basis. Uh, That's appreciated, right? Because there's a lot of uncertainty. I was very fortunate in the fact that my symptoms were were mild. Um, My wife's were a little more moderate. Um, And fortunately, even though we don't have a very big home, uh, our kids uh, have not picked it up. We the first time in, in a couple of weeks that I was able to be within four feet of my, my kids was this morning before I went to the hill. So uh, they've tested negative twice now. So if we get through that, we've learned a lot. We've, we saw firsthand that the second wave is here, and we need to make sure particularly vulnerable Canadians are protected. So people have to be realistic. Even if you're healthy and it doesn't hit you, you can be a carrier. So people have to be very, very cautious.
1: I have to think it probably hurt you more that you actually couldn't be um, in person to, to respond to the throne speech because you were stuck in isolation. Uh, but today was your first chance. You got a chance to respond to the throne speech. And, and your party uh, has been very critical um, of Mr. Trudeau's response, saying, you know, it's been too slow. Uh, it has been too uh, you know reactive instead of proactive. And we got the modeling for Ontario today and we could see. A 1,000 cases a day by mid-October, given your experience. And now that you're a leader, um, there's certainly a lot of growing pressure to shut things down again. So I'll ask you, you know, if you were in charge, if you were the prime minister, uh, what would you do? Given, I mean, I get that it's a provincial issue and the premiers will ultimately be making the decision, but what would you be doing if you were in charge?
4: Well, I'm glad you asked that because that's what I spent a lot of my time in the speech uh, today on. A prime minister is a leader. And if we don't learn the the lessons from the first wave, that is a colossal failure. And my worry with Trudeau is after the tweet is sent, he moves on to the next photo op and the next prepared speech. There is no ownership of the issues. In March, Alex, he said that rapid testing was a top priority. That was half a year and half a trillion dollars later, and we've got nothing. And there's 15 other countries just like ours that have testing and are using them to keep uh, asymptomatic people out of eight hour lineups for tests. So he failed on that. So what I would do to w- is to make sure that we have testing faster and that we have the vulnerable spots, particularly long-term care, particularly the hospital setting, super equipped, not just with PPE, but the best methods of keeping the virus out of places where there's vulnerable. And then We can actually work on less economic disruption if we learn and implement the lessons of the first wave. It's almost like Trudeau was waltzing his way into this second wave. Um, We should have rapid testing. It's been a real failure that we don't
1: have that. Okay, so let me get to the rapid testing in just a second. But would you be uh, pushing the premiers to do a a shutdown of the economy? How would you respond, given that there are only certain areas right now in this country that are seeing high cases? Now, that may change, and we may see it start to go right across the country. But right now, we're not like the first wave where it's sweeping across. We have a chance, you know, I hope to get in front of this thing. But would you uh, support shutting down the economy? again? how would you handle that?
4: I think the way strategically it's being looked at in um, in Quebec, for example, by setting ranges and alert zones where there's further and further restrictions on the risk of of spread based on the the environment. I, I think that's the way to approach it. As you said, Alex, we need to almost get ahead of the wave, and we also have to build up our resources at the points of vulnerability. And so that's probably the biggest learning. We don't see high hospitalizations yet. And with myself, I never went to a hospital, of course, and I was one of the cases two weeks or or so ago. Uh, So we have to protect the vulnerable because healthy people can be spreaders. And so that's why getting people tested, giving asymptomatic people, people with very mild uh, or or almost no symptoms, they shouldn't be in eight-hour lineups because they may just skip it because they don't feel that, that bad this is where the at-home diagnostic testing could really, really help and where it's being used in some other countries. So I think we have to limit the economic closure as much as possible and protect the vulnerable as much as possible. Those are the biggest lessons learned that I would implement as Prime Minister.
1: Now your party has been very critical about the lack of rapid testing. It was a promise by the True government back in March that it would be a priority, and it is what uh, saved Taiwan uh, and ultimately only cost them uh, 7 Uh, Lives, Uh, But this is still weeks away from arriving, and they've ordered 8 million, uh, to my knowledge, so far for the whole country. We learned about this deal yesterday, uh, and on Friday uh, the Prime Minister said that he would not be uh, interfering politically, and and Dr. Tam had said at that point that they didn't have very much data, as it were, to to look into these uh, rapid testing. Um, how is it that this deal got done so quickly overnight? I'm not saying I don't want it to be done. It should have been done months ago. I will take the win because we need it so desperately. But how does that happen so quickly without uh, someone in charge uh, lighting a fire under Health Canada's rear end?
4: Uh, How did that happen so quickly, Alex?
1: My answer Mm -hmm. is Michelle Rempel-Garner.
4: We lit the fire under their butts uh, several weeks ago. And part of the reason I put Michelle in as my shadow minister for health is uh, Minister Haiju has been a disaster. No one's had confidence in her since March. And we needed urgency. We needed leadership. So, you know, uh, I worked in healthcare uh, as a lawyer. Health Canada is notoriously slow and bureaucratic. And as I mentioned to Trudeau today, who, which, of course, he didn't even realize this, but our European trade deal, which the Liberals try and claim credit for, we actually said that we would respect some of the regulatory testing done in EU countries because there's almost a a deemed compliance between some of the uh, the EU regulators, the FDA in the United States. Are we suggesting that the FDA, the most comprehensive drug testing agency in the world, somehow can't get the saliva test right so we could never use their data for approval? That is just political failure to lead in a pandemic of all things. This isn't a test for cancer treatment for someone. This is a test that would isolate someone so they wouldn't spread to other people in an at-home setting. So in, in the context of a crisis, we need leadership. And we haven't seen that from the Liberals. When Michelle Rempel had two weeks of tough questions, the Liberals finally acted. <laughs>
1: With the second wave uh, coming, you know, there's a very real uh, possibility that we will see big targeted shutdowns in places like Toronto, in places like Montreal, um, big sectors of the economy. And uh, there's going to be a lot of people, as you well know, with rent relief coming to an end today. A lot of people need help uh, with CERB and supports. If we go into a shutdown, are you going to support this government again uh, with relief packages and what will be done differently to make sure that the mistakes we saw, let's say, with CERB, um, you know, with no rules in place, or the reverse, where we have rent programs that didn't work for these businesses. Will you support this government in doling out, um, you know, endless amounts of money, um, you know, for supports?
4: No, we are not blindly supporting this government, and I think they now realize, with me in place with the Conservatives, they're going to have someone that is holding their feet to the fire and demanding better. The the part of the reason we have such high unemployment now is. They did get the wage subsidy wrong. I talked about that in my speech. Why were there 8 million, 9 million people on CERB? Because employers didn't think they were getting wage subsidy or they thought it might be 10%. So they let tens of thousands of more people go than should have been. So what we have to do is minimize the economic disruption while maximizing public health safety. It's a tough balance, but here's the kicker. We got through the first wave. We now know the acute vulnerabilities. And maybe it's the military guy, I me and Alex. But after you go through a battle, and I called our fight against COVID a battle, and then the will mocks me when I use that term in February. It was a battle. And we have to learn the lesson so that we protect the vulnerable and minimize as much as possible the economic disruption. I think Canadians need to get ahead of this curve, as you said particularly younger people with the feelings of invincibility, because they can spread to the vulnerable who we have to protect at all costs. So I think we can get this right, but it's going to take political leadership. And I haven't seen that from the prime minister. I've seen it more from the provinces because it was the provinces that had to deal with the community spread because the liberals were two months short on the border. So let's learn the lessons and minimize the disruption with the second wave.
1: Just before I let you go, the Toronto Star headline reads, quote, Why does Aaron O'Toole talk about China so much? I know why I talk about it, but I'm going to let you answer that question. Why do you?
4: Well, because the Toronto Star should be informing its readers that Canada and our allies need to develop work around trade options from China. And I've said uh, the Trudeau government's obsession with China at a time that China, starting in 2017, was actually going the wrong way with state-owned enterprises with Hong Kong, with the Uyghurs. We cannot, um, you know, it's not about the almighty buck. We have to be able to say, look, we can grow new markets in India, repair the damage from the Prime Minister's famous trip there. You remember that one, Alex. Mm. They slapped tariffs on our ag products after that trip. There's remarkable potential for us in the Indo-Pacific with countries that are democratic and follow the rules. So I'm a free trader, but I've said many times, and it shocks people, I want to see fair trade. Fair trade for our workers and fair trade because China gets away with not following the rules, whether it's steel or aluminum, uh, whether it's uh, not respecting the human rights in, in countries um, that they have agreements with, like, like the one country, two systems with Hong Kong. We have to work with our allies to, to come up with new trade systems that in some cases probably tariff Chinese goods and put a preference on goods produced by democratic allies.
1: There you go. Got the answer. Mr. O'Toole, we'll have you on again. I thank you and welcome back to work.
4: Hey, it's good to be with you, Alex, and I'm glad to be back on the scene.
1: Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party, back to work today. And uh, there you go. Now you know why he talks about China and his approach going forward. That is your podcast for today. You can hear us, of course, live Monday through Friday, 630 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.